Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to History and Technicolor. Uh, Wolf and I here to have a chat to you about a new film, which is Wolf's film. Wolf, what are you going to do today? Well, today I've picked The Wind Rises, which is a 2013 Japanese animated film uh, from director uh, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, which is a semi-fictional autobiography of Jiro Horikoshi, the aviation engineer and designer of the Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighter, which was used during World War II. Excellent. Does it have anything anything to do with meteorology? Um, no. Excellent. Oh, well, actually, the- wind is prevalent in the film, but I guess it's not really about uh, meteorology. Okay. Uh, that's uh, a shame. But, you know, never mind. No film can be perfect. Uh, so, Wolf, before we start, I have a couple mm-hmm. of questions for you. Uh, I was looking at the stats because I'm an anal kind of guy and I have kept stats since we started with... What film did we start with? Uh, Zodiac. Correct. Well done. First question correct. You don't have to get these questions correct, by the way. So of all the films that we have done, Wolf... Which one do you think has had the most engagement? Um, the most number of people have responded on Facebook and given it some kind of score. I think the answer is Braveheart. You think correctly. Well done, Wolf. Connect a gold star. Woo! Woo! So proud of you. So proud. And um, although it has to be said that in terms of the next question, I'm going to ask you about what the highest, what film got the highest percentage of of love it rating blowheart uh, Blowheart. braveheart is actually quite low 32 percent 
Uh, so people talked about it, but largely, quite rightly, they're enraged. Mm. Anyway, so which was the second uh, film, the film with the second most, second highest level of engagement? Oh, I think you told me this answer. Is it The Dig? It is, in fact, The Dig, yes. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. You told me. Uh, uh, great, okay. So what you've done, you're doing really well. So the only questions that I have got is which of the films we have done has been has had the lo- highest love it rating. Mm, I'm going to guess a man for all seasons. Oh, that's a very good guess, really. No, it was quite low. Mm, okay, Rubbish, sorry. <laughs> well, I think it might be good vibrations actually, but I haven't actually um, added those numbers up yet. I'm quite certain it wasn't that one. It's had a complete lack of it, and nobody was interested in good vibrations, which is a mistake because it's a great movie. Anyway, uh, no, the most, the highest love it rating came to that deeply uh, rigorous historical movie, Bill and Ted's uh, Adventure. Okay, really? 91. So, which is rather good, isn't it? Um, most bodacious. Uh, yes, most bodacious. Forget the history, boys. Let's just talk Bill and Ted. Um, and then the second, so second highest love it rating then. Oh, I've got to try and remember what we've even done. Um, I don't know, The Lion in Winter? The Lion in Winter is great because people did like that, didn't they? I think I liked that more after talking to you about it. And yes, that was quite high, 85%. But actually the second highest were Paths of Glory, mm. which is quite interesting, isn't it? 88%. And Henry V. Also 88%. Interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Anyway, I have nothing more to say about that in the words of Forrest Gump. Um, So why don't we talk about meteorology? Okay. Well, um, I selected this film because my friend Lewis suggested it. Um, Right. To be honest, he suggested it, and then it got me thinking, and I realized I hadn't seen it since it came out in the cinema. So I thought I would give it a reappraisal. Um, I think maybe at the time I wasn't that high on the movie, um, but I think that's because I was a fool. And so this gave, <laughs> this gave me the opportunity to uh, also... Self-knowledge is a good thing, Wolf, although to be honest, too much self-knowledge can be a bad thing. Anyway, carry on. Okay, thank you, A little David. bit of pop psychology for you, yeah. I was trying to think about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, this gave me the opportunity to select an animated film uh, from one of the greatest animation studios on the planet, uh, and I thought it would be a really interesting viewpoint on the war, which obviously comes up in so many of the films that we, we look at. Before we begin, though, David, I wanted to ask you what your favorite aircraft might be. I found this a really difficult question because you prepped me, of course, which is lovely of you. Um, and I found it really a quite difficult question because I'm not sure I had a favourite. Okay, I'm going to give you my favourite, but I'm not impressed with the answer. The answer is that drop wing, but single wing precursor to the zero, because I rather like the drop wing mm. um, approach. But I like them all, actually. They're all great fun. Um the uh, all those big uh, ones by the Italian designer at the beginning were great fun as well. A bit they were a bit yellow submarine sort of thing. So I didn't really have a favourite, but I thought all of the animations of the aircraft were enormous fun. And um, what's your favourite general like plane ever? My favourite. Always, oh, I'm afraid. I mean, you're gonna. This is going to put me in an old farties box. 
but it has to be um, the Spitfire, doesn't it? Yeah, I did. I did think sorry that. about that. You know, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry because you know I know we talk about World War Two too much in this country, but I'm afraid he's a bit of a winner. Um, the other one I made that the film reminded me of actually those Italian movies, those Italian dream sequences were is the Spruce Goose. Mm. I remember when I was very small um, and rather better looking than I am now. Actually, I saw a film. A black and white film about Howard Hughes and the Spruce Goose, and for some reason, uh, it gave me memories of that. Nice. Well, thank you, David. Um, okay, so the film. So the film is based on um, Jiro Horikoshi's memoir, "The Eagles of Mitsubishi: The Story of the Zero Fighter," and it was published in Japan in 1970. Uh, the film is also loosely based on the 1937 novel The Wind Has Risen um, by Tatsuo Hori, as well as other literary sources, which I'll come to later. And so during the sections with Nahoka and the Tuberculosis Sanitarium, those come from this book. Now, I have quite a lot of thoughts on this film, but I wanted to start by getting your opinion, David. Um, what did you think of the film? How did you find the animation, and had you ever seen any other Studio uh, Ghibli films before? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great fun. Uh, and it was quite different to the films that we've seen before, so that was great. I have not seen any animations from that studio before, and my son Henry told me off quite severely, actually, for that. And I thought the animation was great. I, I'm not experienced or knowledgeable about different types of animations. I much preferred it, though, to the kind of quasi-digital thing we have, like, I don't know, just to give an, a useful equivalent movie, movie, Ice Age. I much preferred it to that kind of quasi-realistic, computer-generated kind of image. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was um, whimsical. Good. Brilliant. Uh, and what did you think of the film? Oh, that was great. I would say, I think it was, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I understand there are some inaccuracies, which we'll talk about it, but it raised interesting questions as well as being an interesting story about a designer. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Definitely more than the first time I saw it. Um, I think that the score is wonderful. Really, really good stuff. Soaring stuff, maybe even. Um, the use of human voices in the sound design, um, especially the earthquake and the fire, is fascinating. I don't know if you can tell, but some of the like plane sounds, it's people using their voices to um, make the sound of machinery. Oh, is that right? I, I mean, I was interested. I think you make a good point about the score. Uh, and the and the fire sequence in particular, because the the fire almost felt like sounded like a beast, you know, a monster. It, it gave the fire, you know, living characteristics about this terrible thing that was happening, which I thought was great. So I thought the score was really good. I'm also interested. You say you enjoyed it more second time, yeah. Than first, why is that? Well, I'll bring this up again later, but I think it was more to do with the film I was going in looking for versus the film that I got. And the second time round, I was prepared for what I was going to watch. 
and was ready to embrace that. This is slightly different from their general, the kind of the rest of their work that they produce as a studio, um, a little bit more mature. And I think I was somewhat bored, but yeah, on a, on a rewatch, I was, I was really open-minded to it and I thought it was more interesting and less uh, formulaic than I remembered it. Right. Um, obviously the animation is glorious. Um, I thought the film does a pretty good job over its sort of time period of giving us the setting and the feel of the time. Um, lots of references to a variety of historical events, which we can go into later, plenty of socioeconomic and political detail, which helps kind of, uh, you know, bring everything out. Um, and the film has a lot of heart. Uh, it really resonates and it makes what could be a dry story, something a lot more interesting. I guess the only kind of negative that I come around to is that I do think the film is slightly torn in its approach. Um, and even though I enjoyed it more, I think it can be a slight up and down viewing experience as it moves between the kind of different worlds that it wants to deal with. Yes, I know what you mean. There is a, as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's more, there's a kind of split personality in the movie, which does give it a, an intellectual problem. There's not a, really a very clear theme but then in a sense that's what people are like and biopics are a disastrous form of movie aren't they i mean tell me this is turning to a pub conversation obviously tell me one good biopic that you've ever seen and film well um i'll bring up another one that we did before which is amadeus is that a biopic i suppose it is Yes, okay, that's bloody good. But I guess what we're saying is maybe the reason Stop Amadeus... giving me good answers. Maybe the reason that's a good biopic is because, and maybe same with this as well, is that they deviate from the basic formula. I think mm. if a, a really standard biopic can be one of the most boring films that exists, um, even I mean, if like, the content's good. I mean, it's like that film recently about Freddie Mercury. Everybody said it was great. It was all right, but the music was good. Apart from that, sucked, really. Anyway. Good to know. Uh, (laughs) Carry on. Um, So, David, I wanted to ask you as we sort of dissect the film, what did you think about the use of dreams? I thought that worked really well. I loved it. Um, I think it's easier to do in an animation, I would suppose. I could be entirely wrong. I knew sort of all about film. Uh, But because it's animation, you give more latitude, I think, as to what the filmmaker can do. And a, moving to a dream sequence in a in an ordinary film is quite difficult, and I think it gets a bit complicated. Am I in reality? Am I out of reality? And I never found that. With this, I knew when I was in a dream sequence, it was quite easy, and it, I allowed that to happen. The other thing was that the dream allowed you to see the aspiration in one sense, which is one of the features of the film, the aspiration versus what actually happened. And it also allowed you to see consequences in the future that are outside the run of the film. So, you know, for example, the destruction caused by the war for which the zero was used. So I thought it worked great. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I'm pleased. I'm really pleased. I wasn't sure how you would respond to this movie. Um, and I think that the dreams are maybe the aspect of the film that most helps to elevate it from being a standard biopic. And it really present uh, prevents Jiro from being this boring character. 
because we'll go into him, but he he can be a little bit boring, and it's this huge access to his thoughts and his dreams and desires and inspirations um, that really pull everything together. We can always we can all be a little bit boring, to be honest, Wolf. Yep. I mean, not you, obviously, but you know, I can sometimes. No, I, I definitely can be, and potentially am right now. Um, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. While thinking about the dreams, what I thought was so. Uh, impressive is how much detail they can convey in such a short period of time. So sometimes you can watch, I don't know, 20 minutes of the film and you don't get that much insight into the characters. Um, And then in like a one minute dream sequence, you can learn so much. Uh, So just with the opening, for example, to to go through that, I thought that it, because we open immediately into a dream sequence, we get straight away that he loves flying um, and his plane is actually more like a bird than a traditional plane. So that kind of fanciful image um, helps show that it's, it's not just aviation in general, but the kind of dreamlike nature of flight itself. We get that he wants to be a pilot, but that he's worried about his eyesight and that he's afraid that he won't be able to be a pilot. And then we get his fear of the war, the corruption of uh, industrialization. We get the German iconography and the references to the atomic bomb and the future devastation of Japan. And it's all div- delivered in this mini story, like right at the beginning, that kind of lets us know that everything that's going to happen or could happen uh, throughout the whole film. And I, I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And a really, really handy glimpse into the creative process because so much of the film is about. Yes, because I guess creative. that. Yes, I guess that is one of the problems of biopics isn't it, that you can't get into the person's brain somehow, although that's what the BR biopic is trying to do, and the dream sequences really helped us do that. Because as you say, you know, he's an industrial designer. It's quite difficult to make industrial design terribly interesting. There are designers all over the world getting cross as I say that. But, you know, it's like those computer hacker-type films, you know, person sits in front of a computer. It's not great. Okay. So I think the dream really helps with that, as you say. Good. Uh, and also I've learned that I won't be presenting a computer hacker type movie uh, on a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love that film, though. The, what's the one? War Games. Is that a film 1980s? Uh, with Matthew when Broderick. We just, that's the one. That's a great movie. And Jumping Jack Flash, that's a great movie, too. That takes place with a lot of computers. I, haven't, I actually haven't seen that one. Okay, Jumping Jack Flash, Whoopi Goldberg. It's gone on the list. Oh, Whoopi Goldberg, okay, I'm in. Yeah, Um, good. So I wanted to go through and deliver a bit of kind of background to the film, which maybe helps explain how I felt about it at the time and kind of the impact that the film had and and how it was read uh, initially. So um, Hayao Miyazaki is an animator, screenwriter, author, manga artist, producer, and director, as well as one of the founding members and principal figures of Studio Ghibli. Thus, suffice to say, he is intrinsically linked with the studio. So back in 2013, I think think it was then, he announced this was the film that he was going to retire with. It was going to be his last film. And as a fan of them, I remember the shockwaves that kind of went through me and my friends and through the industry as people wondered if the studio was going to close. They'd been working for like 30 years and they were beloved by everyone. Would this be the end if this man left? And they did halt production after this film for I think two or three years and not make anything else. Um, He is coming back for another movie. So 
rejoice, but also um, it's like a, I don't know, one of those really long encores um, at a concert where you start to think, oh, come on, just just come out and uh, give us the show or turn the lights up. Um, yes, that's right. A bit like when uh, when we leave my parents' house, you know, it took us about half an hour of, um, we're really going now. Yes, okay, get you. I'm going out to the car now. Yes. Come on, darling. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think what I mean is, like, at this time, everyone was like, oh, my God, this is the last opportunity to see a Miyazaki movie and maybe even a Studio Ghibli movie. So the last chance to get to the cinema, there might not be any more. And with all of this kind of expectation, I think that this quiet, personal film is maybe maybe anticlimactic after everything that they've done and the heights that they've reached. Um, but on reflection... It feels more like the perfect swan song movie. Um, it's really personal, and I think in a lot of ways it kind of uh, is a summation of everything that he's done in his career. So the film takes a lot of Miyazaki's regular motifs and themes and crafts them into this passionate story. Uh, Miyazaki famously is a pacifist, so he's anti-war. He is an environmentalist, a feminist. He's an anti-industrialist. Um, he grew up during um, the rapid development of the Showa era in Japan, so it's like 55 to 65. And these themes are kind of prevalent in most of his work, and he speaks about them openly. Um, alongside this, he does have this deep love and fascination for aviation. And aviation features in almost all of his films as well, whether it's just in the background or whether it's in his... He has one of his films, it's called Porco Rosso, which is about this fighter pilot who gets cursed and turned into a pig. And um, it's wonderful. So it's in every one of his movies, and we know that he he loves aviation and everything about it. But obviously we can see the contradiction in, in him that we get presented with in Jiro in the movie. Um, and Miyazaki often talks about this, how he's fascinated by these planes, but is deeply anti-war. And so I think that having a loose knowledge of him and everything that he's done prior to this helps reveal that this film isn't just a, a biopic of Jiro, but is a semi-autobiography about Miyazaki himself. And it's through this story that he is able to present this kind of self-analysis. Also, the fact that he's a creative himself means that I feel his presence a lot in all of the kind of dream sequences and creative processes of the film. So that was just something I would I thought would be interesting to add. Um, what did you think of the character of Jiro? Uh, was he well-developed? It's kind of well-developed. Um, I'd sort of give it a 6 out of 10, I suppose. Um, I don't think the animation helps. Well, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, I got an impression of the man mm -hmm. as this kind of rather dreamy, quite romantic, sort of idealistic sort of bloke. But then I wasn't quite sure how much that squared with his quite professional approach to his job, as it were. Although I think there's this interesting theme about the choices that he makes between, uh, you know, personal uh, love and career, as it were. But um, it was okay. I didn't get. He wasn't just simply a cardboard cutout, as most other characters, they're not quite all, were in the film. But he. I think he was only partially drawn. Okay. Yeah. And I, I would I would generally agree. I think that 
the characterization is a little bit subtle. He's a bit of a blank slate. And Hang on. So you're saying it's a bit too subtle for me. That's what you're saying, yeah? No, no. I mean... I mean, I, you know, I'm personally outraged about it. I'm going to leave this interview right now. No, I, I, no, I meant like... Um, <laughs> You could, I think you can view it one of two ways. You can either argue that he's like a complete blank slate and isn't really developed that much, or that the characterization is kind of slight, um, subtle moments um, that can help build this picture, but it's not exactly uh, this hugely well-rounded character. I think part of that problem, which mm. is... There's a lot of critiques about this film because it's about Jiro, this man who invented this warplane, which carried out so much destruction. And I wonder if there's a certain desire to distance him somewhat from the real man. Um, and if it is, as I think it is, uh, a bit of a autobiography, then there's this kind of meshing between the original figure and the director Miyazaki into this one character. And so I think it's slightly jumbled and... As a result, having him as a blank slate is quite beneficial. And also, it, it enables you to give the dream sequences so much kind of presence. Um, I guess that's why he can be kind of deadpan and, you know, just lost in his work and quite reserved most of the time. But we can see that's not really what he's like on the inside. Yes, I think um, it's very interesting that the... I understand that the sequence where he goes away to a rural retreat with his wife-to-be is completely fictional. And because that's the point at which you see this other side of the character of being personal, romantic, engaged. And, well, it's not true. So what does that tell us about the real Jiro? and the aims of this film to maybe rehabilitate him. Yes. Um, it is interesting that, and we'll do the historical accuracy in more detail later, but he does have a family and he does have kids, but I guess that his actual like family life can't be this somewhat romanticized vision. And because he was able to have a family and his career, it doesn't present the same dilemma that the movie wants it to have. Um, there's some suggestions that I guess Miyazaki in, a, in, his, in his own life substituted family a lot for his work and it's possibly a regret that he has now in his later years so what you mean he thinks that he spent too much time at home with the family over his work no too much time on his work other way around okay yeah. Because it could be the first person, you know, famously they say, don't you, that you don't know of anybody on their deathbed who says, I wish I'd spent more time at work. And I thought maybe you'd find an, an exception. But no, he's the traditional way around, yeah? Yeah. So I think that you could, you can see that kind of, that point where he has to decide what he wants to do. Um, is just, it works better for the drama. It works better for the story than if everything kind of worked out. And... Those were all obviously literary references, so maybe the audience would get those and could see those stories being, you know, brought to life. I thought that he was kind of harmless. He's a pretty nice character, interesting to observe. Like it's fun to see him fascinated by his work, and I I find the detail of the movie really enjoyable. So I could probably watch Jiro like doing his 
his drawings and then doing his testing and then going back to the drawing board and then checking out his equipment. I could watch him do that for, for hours. Seeing how this plane is constructed and built, I find that genuinely fascinating. Um, I think, I think though, one of the things I found the film didn't do very well is communicate the essence of his genius. So I think it would be really interesting for somebody to do a biopic of uh, Brunel, for example, or Stevenson. How do you communicate that engineering genius? And they don't really manage it here. What they present, I think, is a trier, somebody who works really, really hard, really enjoys his job, really wants to find better solutions and not just be satisfied with what went before. And maybe that's that's what genius is. Yes. There was no alternative vision that said this is somebody who had some extraordinary insights that made a massive difference. I think I would only counter-argue that there are a few moments where uh, the film really focuses on how he creates the riveting system that can reduce drag, which no one else has done or employed. And then there's that, I hate, like, sprocket. I hate... I hate to employ a terrible pun, but the riveting bit wasn't very riveting, though, was it? <laughs> no, I would agree. You know, if if that's what he achieved, smooth rivets, well, you know. No, but um, there's the other bit, though, where he creates that, um, like, the the bracket, which has the wires and the pulley on it, so it can support the weight and it stretches because the planes that they're using keep buckling. Um and those, it's those key little bits of design which he seems to be creating and then everyone else around him wants to take and use it on their planes because they're like forward thinking that no one else at the time is using. I, I do... I, I suppose that. it... I suppose that's right. I mean, it goes back to the Edison thing of 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, doesn't it? Was that Thomas Edison? Anyway. Uh, so, yes, I'm just being unengineering-minded, as it were. And I'd like to formally apologize to the engineering profession. Do you think, um, one point, do you think that Jiro is like a sanitized character? Do you think that maybe there are more complexities to this man, especially around the fact that he's building this war plane and his link with the military? Do you ever get the impression that he's they almost remove some of the complexity so that he can be more likable or passive as, as a kind of your central character? There's a tradition, isn't there, in Germany? I think we discussed discussed it with Das Boot, that um, the Wehrmacht were not really Nazis and not guilty of the Second World War in the way that other may be. And I feel a little bit the same about this, that what the film tries to do is let Jiro off the hook and say, look, it's the military who are terrible and they're over here, and whenever they're shown, they're caricatures and they've got angry faces and very robotic similar faces i think the film tries to square the circle of look here's this wonderful designer who is creating engines of war and the author is a pacifist by trying to create difference that these people are forced into doing this it's not really what they're like it's not their fault they've got these other dreams of mass transport so i i mean that's my feeling about the way the character is drawn do you feel that the film is ambiguous enough that you can read it in multiple ways, that it is also critical of Jiro and his life choices and maybe his um, his decision to make this plane? Or do you think that it's ultimately always kind of on one side? 
hedging its bets. I feel as though I feel as though it's on one side trying to excuse him. Okay, but I could be wrong. No, no, I think I think that's reasonable, um, and I think that is where the film gets some of its criticisms, um, which I will bring up. I see also that it's being criticised by the Japanese Society for Tobacco or something like that. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that does happen an awful lot in the movie. There's a lot of smoking going on. Yeah. And I was, you know, it was it was causing me serious twitches and thinking, ooh, I could do with a fag right now. So, you know. Yeah. Um, I watched a documentary about Miyazaki some time ago, and he smokes just as much. He's a very old man, and in almost every shot, it's cigarette, put it out, start the next one. Right. It, it feels like that. So it doesn't surprise me that they put it into the movie, but I guess one of the critiques is like, you could take it out, you don't need it. And I uh, saw there were a lot of doctors who were really mad that he smokes next to his wife who has tuberculosis um, and Correct. doesn't go outside. He does ask to go outside, He does. But, but some she people says, no, it's fine, darling. <laughs> um, so you've kind of talked a little bit about what you think the potentially what the aim of the movie was. So I just wanted to kind of double check. What did you think kind of the purpose or meaning of the film was and how successful do you think it was? That's a really hard question. I I don't know what the meaning. So I think it could well be that it's about a shark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, just to get flipped to Mark Kermode speak. Um, I mean, I thought it was a... a a biopic of somebody that he is trying to excuse okay um of how maybe we're forced by circumstances to do things that get in the way of our life aspirations you know we've all got to make a living and if the only game in town is in aviation design is warplanes unfortunately that's kind of what your life's going to be like and if you if you think that it's trying to kind of get this guy off the hook a little bit, do you think it's successful in doing that, or do you think that you are critical of it for for that? No, I think it lets him off the hook. Okay, to be honest. But then you and I disagree about Thomas More, for example. Yes, you know you think Thomas More is a bit of a worm because he leaves his family in the lurch, uh, whereas in that film, I I buy the uh, the heroism of the man who dies for his own principles. So, you know, there's a basic difference between us. Well, both. but with this film, I'm quite torn. I can see both sides. And when I've been reading criticism of the movie, I can understand it, but I don't necessarily personally feel it. Or I don't want to go all in on disliking aspects of this movie. But at the same time, I do feel uncomfortable about really enjoying or... Um, praising other aspects of it at the same time. Mm. It would set a high bar for Jiro, would it not, for him to reject everything that's going on. I mean, one of the most interesting historically, I know we're doing this all in the wrong order, one of the interesting historical themes was how Japan saw the West and saw itself in relation to the West. Mm. It's a really interesting theme. It would have been very hard for Jiro, wouldn't it, to say okay, I'm not going to follow my talent and I'm going to stand out against everything that society is telling me. Maybe that would make make for a very impressive person, but it's, cool. it's a high bar. Yeah, I, and I also think that it doesn't necessarily let Jira off the hook, but the military is going to do what the military is going to do. And he's not really going to be privy to most of that. 
it's almost as soon as he's created it and it's done, it's in someone else's hands. Now he has to deal with the moral, you know, responsibility of inventing this in the first place. And ultimately he must know what's going to happen. But I guess there's, there is the interesting scene in the dream sequence where uh, Caproni has been developing the warplanes, but then it's almost a means to an end. And once the war is over, He's then finally able to build the planes that he wants to build, which are the like passenger ones. And so you, I guess you could argue that this is what he has to do now in order to follow his dreams. And then he can, you know, do good in the future. I would argue though, that at the end of the movie, it's not a positive ending no. or not a completely positive ending. And I, I definitely think that that cut from the plane flying gloriously, wonderful job done, high fives all around immediate slash to the utter destruction of Japan Mm. is it has an impact. And I I don't think the movie wants to hide from the reality of, of the war and what the consequences of this are. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, There's another interesting thing in the movie, which is the Italian designer says, I think at quite near the beginning, a designer is, at his height for no more than 10 years. Mm. And at the end, he refers back to them and says, did you enjoy your 10 years? Um, and I read into that some kind of regret that these 10 years of his peak creativity were dominated by creating military aeroplanes. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been reading, especially about the Zero, um, and I guess Miyazaki's response to it when he was younger as a child is that this plane does have huge resonance in Japan and did at the time. Think about how you, you know, we've already both mentioned the Spitfire. The, mm. the national pride in that plane is unreachable heights. The link that that plane has with this country is phenomenal. And I think in many ways, the Zero had that impact on Japan and its people. And it, it was, you know, it sure, it brought them into the war, but I, I think, and I'm not saying, I'm not supporting it, but I can understand how much pride people had in the creation of this. And the technical technological achievement, the fact that it was able to compete to an extent with the powerhouse um, countries around the world in, you know, in war, they weren't this kind of lesser country, you know, for a time, especially during their rebuild. So I think there is a lot of pride associated with this. It just happens to be tied up in this destructive weapon. And I guess if you're a creator, you set out to create a plane and they, they created one of the most beautiful planes and most revered planes that existed. Yes, I think it's also set against the context, if we're in a way segueing into the history bit, mm-hmm that a very strong theme throughout the film is this thing about Japan feeling left behind by the West and feeling inferior to the West in terms of technology. And therefore the zero, I guess, is a sign that, well, they no longer are and that they are sitting at the high table of civilization, as it were, in an odd sort of way, certainly a technical competence and there is a theme actually i've just done a a a multi-part series of shedcasts on the british constitution it's a bit of internal product placement by the way um 
And one of the things to talk about is the the Meiji uh, Constitution in Japan in 1888, which is an expression of, look, Japan needs to modernize. It needs to come out of its isolation and it needs to compete with the West. And a constitution is a sign of that. This kind of continues that theme, I think, of Japan wanting to prove itself, as it were. And... Now, the more I think about it, this is where the genius of of Jiro kind of comes in. I get the impression when it starts that they don't have as much access to materials and to the technology and the the kind of plans to do what they want to do. Now, they do go and travel to Europe and gain some more understanding and and work with Germany and others to kind of improve their knowledge. But I, I get the impression that it's Jiro's ability to engineer and come up with new ideas that helps them overcome some of the the restrictions and obstacles they have in their way regarding material uh, workforce equipment infrastructure etc so that they can build these planes to compete considering it's not a level playing field yes i think that comes through very strongly and even though they do work with the germans the germans are rather reluctant to show them the full game. And I'm sure absolutely that's part of Jiro's achievement that you get from the film is that he manages to get through all that and dispense with the competitive disadvantage with which he starts. Well, as we go into the history of the film, I just thought it was worth discussing the reception um, because we've kind of brought up some of this already. The film outraged a lot of nationalists because of its anti-Japanese views. Um, So there seems to have been... A lot of, I, admittedly, I've read this in the Guardian article, so you know you could take some of it with a pinch of salt. But Miyazaki was arguing back um, that Japan's kind of modern politicians are trying to sanitize their wartime history. So then the viewpoint is that he is hopefully not sanitizing; he's showing some reality to it. We could question that, I guess. Um, and then also the counter view is that there was a lot of outrage, especially from South Korea that this film lionizes the creator of one of the most potent symbols of Japanese militarism, while ignoring the fact that, for example, a large proportion of the workers who helped assemble the warplanes were forced laborers from the Korean peninsula. So I do think that that these discussion points reveal some of the conflicting viewpoints that this film kind of brings up. Well, I suppose it's complicated, isn't it? Because the war means different things to different nations. Um, I thought what was interesting, though, was that I find it strange that nationalists would complain about it. I found it very interesting during the film how he changes from traditional Japanese dress to Western dress. And I also found it interesting how you saw quite a lot of landscape in the film, quite a lot of sight of traditional life. And I got the very strong impression that the author loved this traditional Japan, and maybe one of the messages that the militaristic lot are ruining it. I didn't get a a feeling that he thought Japan was bad, as it were, very much a love of his country, but an anger about those militarists who were taking down a particular direction. Yeah, I I would agree. I, I think that where this criticism was coming from is that there were, it had negative views of, I guess, the modernization of Japan, the military, the government, their role within the war. And I definitely don't see this film as a pro-war film. 
it's quite critical of Japan's rule and everything that they did at that time. And the author, like the director himself, is very critical. I didn't get any impression of that. I mean, to be honest, I mean, certainly there's no, I saw nothing in mm-hmm. there about Japanese war crimes or anything like that. But I did see a very strong, because they're not in the film, but I did see a very strong, strongly negative representation of the military. Jiro and his sponsor in the firm both quite often say, hey, the militaries are here. Jiro at one point hides from the military. So there's a very strong feeling that the military bad. But I didn't, I didn't, there's nothing about Korea. There's nothing about the war in general. All you do is you see at the end, you see the destruction of Japan and the fires burning. Yeah, I do see that. Well, let's move on to the history because we've been going on for a while. So I'll try and be as brief as I can be. So overall, as we've established, there are kind of a bunch of key sources for this film, and they're both fictional and historical. So you have Jiro's memoir, you have the short story, The Wind Has Risen, you have Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, you have a French poem uh, by uh, Valeri, uh, as well as you have Miyazaki did his own manga of this story that he made four years earlier. And I had a look at it, and quite a lot of the images from that come straight off the page into the film. Um, So it's, I guess, an adaptation of his own fictional work to an extent. And, like I argue, is semi-autobiographical. So I think what we're getting is not exactly an accurate biopic, um, and that the film doesn't really hide any of these influences. Um, But there are a bunch of fictional elements of the story which are woven around a historical skeleton. And I think that helps elevate it above a standard biopic. In terms of what did happen, the film is full of historical detail. It directly shows or references a number of key moments from the Great Kanto Earthquake and the subsequent fire to the economic crash of 27, the Shoah Depression of 29. Uh, There are references to the invasion of Manchuria and the withdrawal from the League of Nations and the Sino-Japanese War. And that's all just in the background to the main events of Jiro's life and the development of this plane. In terms of accuracy... I think you can quibble about a lot of the events. So, for example, how the earthquake plays out. Um, Jiro's diaries don't reveal that he was ever there or he anything significant happened to him at that time. But it was also a massive 7.9 magnitude earthquake that destroyed 111,000 buildings and burned down a lot more of that afterwards. So I think it's reasonable to assume that he would have experienced this or been aware of it. And it's not this giant leap to assert him into that story. Um, most of the personal and private side of Jiro's life are completely fictional, as we've said. Um, and it's more an adaptation of these other texts. He did become ill, and he did go to the country to recover and focus on his work, uh, away from the kind of pressure of the war. But he didn't meet his wife there, and she didn't have tuberculosis. Uh, and like I said, he had, a, he had children and a family, and I assumed that they were happy. In terms of kind of Jiro's views on the war, the events of the construction of the Zero are meticulously detailed in his memoir, and a lot of that plane construction, the testing, all of that sort of thing feels very realistic in the film. It captures the essence of the book, as far as I can tell. Um, and Jiro did travel to Germany, France, England, and America with Mitsubishi on his research. Um, he states in his diaries that he was against the war. Uh, in many ways, there was one quote, 
Japan is being destroyed. I cannot do anything but to blame the military hierarchy and the blind politicians in power for dragging Japan into this hellish cauldron of defeat. So that's a pretty strong view, but I think you could argue it's a lot to do with how they've handled the war and how they're dealing with it when it's kind of turning sour. Um, He personally experienced a lot of the horrors of the war, especially the air raids on Tokyo and Nagoya. Uh, Nagoya was a mostly wooden city, and during the incendiary raids, uh, it was almost completely burned to the ground. Um, and he, you know, he did experience uh, bombings that happened quite near his home that he could see from his house. It's been suggested from his writings that he didn't anticipate that Japan was going to ally with Germany against the US and Britain during the war, especially during some of his earlier work with Mitsubishi. And maybe he didn't quite know the impact that his creation was going to have, uh, especially in instances like Pearl Harbor. He was very proud of what he had done, and he was very proud that he had dedicated his life to his country and to his work. Um, I definitely think that the the kamikaze missions were a, maybe a turning point for him. Um, those became known to the nation in October of 1944, and Jiro was approached to comment on them uh, by the newspapers, but he declined. Um, and I get the impression from what I've been reading that he he was quite hurt by this revelation uh, that his machines were being used in this way and that the war had turned and that the military and the government weren't doing anything to help anymore. They were just sending soldiers to die. And I don't think he could quite deal with that. Um, and previously, he'd obviously lost a number of pilots during test flights, uh, and seems to have been quite distressed having to attend his friend's funerals. Um, so this is an interesting kind of side to Jerry that we don't necessarily get in the movie. Uh, and then just to kind of finish it off, he had a quote which said, all I wanted to do was to make something beautiful. Uh, and Miyazaki has claimed that this is the quote that kind of pulled everything together and let him know that this was going to be the lead character for his next film. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add, David? Not really, actually. I also picked up on that quote um, and think it's a very interesting one in relation to the movie, uh, that that's what it's trying to say about Jiro, in a sense, that here's a, here's a genius, but he can't he can't fulfil that genius in the way he wants to because the real world always yeah. pulls him back, as it does for all of us. Um, if it wasn't for the real world, Wolf, I would be a genius. Yeah, well, I still think you are, David. <laughs> Took a little bit too long to say that. You might okay. want to be a bit quicker in future. Um, so, uh, but no, I don't have anything to add. The only historical thing I had to add, actually, well, a couple of things, which I think you've already mentioned. I won that the rural retreat was apparently tripe, and apparently he had a younger he had a younger brother rather than a younger sister. No idea why he met, they made that change, but that the the relationship with Western powers and the flavor of that sounded felt very convincing. Yeah, did you find the when you were watching the film without doing any research? Did you find it convincing? Yeah, in its historical setting and feel. Yes, that feeling that the Japan needed to catch up and needed to exceed uh, Western powers and that kind of feel of in a sense, distrust between the two. Yeah. I, I thought it had a, a great sense of kind of place and people mm. and the time. It dealt with political issues and social issues. Um, yeah. I thought it was more accurate than maybe I had anticipated it would be, knowing that so much of it is 
um, fictional influences. So what would you rate it as a film? Okay. Uh, well, I had a very nice time watching it. It wouldn't go right to the top of the tree, but I'm going to give it a 7.2. No, hmm. I'm going to give it a 7. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking between an 8 or a 9. Uh, yeah, so you're maybe probably I'll say... right. So I might say an 8. be more generous. Okay. Well, let's agree on an 8, because I think I'd be happy to go okay. with that. It's a good movie. Um, and then the history rating, which I think is a little bit harder. I went for a 6, but that's more for key events, places, feel, detail, authenticity, and I guess the detail that goes into so much of the kind of plane construction that Enduro's kind of, that work, it, it feels really real to me when he's, there, you know, working in the, the offices. It does. I, I think a six is a very fair mark. But then you're a fair man. <laughs> Good. Uh, would you recommend it? I would. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think uh, uh, it's a couple of hours well spent. And are you pleased? I get, I'm assuming it's maybe a film that you would never have... No, I would never have picked it up on. So yes, you're. Thank you for that. It's uh, it's a good choice and it's an interesting choice. Good. And uh, what are you going to do next week for us? Next week, I am going to do Peterloo, which is a film about which I felt very conflicted in terms of suggesting it. Hmm. Okay. I look forward to this. Yes, indeed. Okay. Thank you very much, then, everybody. Do come along to the Facebook site. Vote. Give an opinion and uh, get engaged, and we'd really enjoy that. And we will be back in a couple of weeks' time with Peter Lou. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Cheers, then all. Bye bye. Are you not entertained? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 